Greetings again, everyone. My own welcome to the guests. Mr. and Mrs. Vance are with us from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. A lot of you know them. And some new faces that uh, I was just meeting briefly before the services today as well. What do you think of that day we got going out there? Isn't that unbelievable? Almost tempted to put the chairs out in the back and hold services on the lawn. It's like the first day of fall to me because the wind was blowing out on the lake and a few leaves going by and stepped outside and it was about 68 degrees or so. And I said, oh boy, I'm getting kind of weary of summer anyway. And we've been doing a lot of work about the Feast of Tabernacles. The last two issues of the newspaper have had about four articles in the aggregate talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Mr. Dart and I and some others with some input from Ted Phillips and others have finished the festival speaking schedule. And uh, so we're continually thinking about going up to Branson or over to Guntersville and out to Kings Beach. And kind of a feeling of fall is in the air all of a sudden. I'm getting itchy feet and ready to take off of the feast right now. I had to do the first, I say had, I got to do the first new television programs of the new series this last week. And I would also want to add to the sermonette that I would appreciate all of the prayers of all of you and all of the people around the church for the television programs. It's not the easiest thing in the world, you know, to simply uh, stare into a black camera for one half hour and kind of pretend that that's people in there and talk to them like you were sitting in their living room. But I've done that for many, many years. I'm sort of used to it, but still don't think you don't work up a little bit of perspiration and you get kind of keyed up for it and you do want to do the very best job you possibly can. I was playing my little game with them on the television program that I came up with in the campaign over in Atlanta and that I mentioned here. The game of let's pretend that God does exist and let's just pretend for the fun of it, whether we're atheists or skeptics or what, that the Bible really is the Word of God, just like playing school, just pretending for the fun of it, like a, a TV game that has prizes we're going to issue. And let's also take all of our past religious concepts and tie them up in a neat little package and put them on the shelf and leave them over there. We're not asking people to uh, destroy them or burn them up or do away with them. Leave them there where they can get them back later. But all the heaven, the hell, the soul, the... Uh, religious upbringing and teaching, just leave them over there in the package for the time being. And then we discovered a lot of scriptures that we just wished weren't even in the Bible. It's amazing. If you were a young uh, graduate of a seminary somewhere and you'd been taught all the proverbial mainstream Protestant doctrines and how many scriptures you can come up with, you really wish weren't in the Bible. If Peter had just not said what he did on the second chapter of the book of Acts about David has not ascended into the heavens... If there were just not scriptures in the Bible about keeping the Ten Commandments that we had discovered in the book of Revelation in the last chapter, verse 14, those that keep his commandments have a right to enter into the city and so on. Well, I do believe that the upcoming television programs are going to be very strong. I will just say that I will do my human and physical best. I will certainly pray about the programs. We'll ask you to do the same thing, and then we'll just ask God to make up for my lack and inability and Sometimes uh, sarcasm, I think I get a, an Elijah complex every now and then, and I'm tempted to taunt people. And I really, my wife gets on me when I do that. I really know that I shouldn't do that. I also get tempted to imitate people. Uh, I hear them on Sunday morning every now and then and catch just a few seconds of them, and I'm tempted to imitate them. So I, but I didn't do that. My wife can relax. I didn't do that on the first couple of programs. So I'll try not to do that this year if I can. 
We continue every week to have a little trickle of letters and phone calls from members of the other organization that I still say is the parent organization, no matter the feelings that that evinces in some people. I think one lady called Mr. Dart. You may remember the sermon that he gave out of this pulpit a few weeks ago where he sort of took the gloves off and said something about sending money to a corrupt organization to perpetuate the corruption. He said it rather loud, loudly. Uh, the lady apparently heard that tape, and she called. She said, that did it, you know, and really uh, it just, I guess, enlightened her. And she said, I'm going to be with you at the feast in Branson this year. Well, I got a call from Mr. Les Pope this morning, and he was saying similar words to me. That He said, you know, it's amazing. You can, you can treat these people just very gently, and you can be very mild-mannered and easygoing with them and say, you know, everything's fine, don't worry about a thing. But he said it almost takes a big board to just get them to understand what's going on and to really question what they're doing sitting in there year after year going along with what they know is absolutely contrary to the Word of God. So I guess he's had a similar experience up there in the Oklahoma City area. We have had a number of letters, one of which was very inspiring this week from a brand new person who donated to the church for the first time, and he donated $2,000, first time we'd ever heard from him. So I think that I'll write him a personal letter of thanks, and we do receive uh, some very encouraging news once in a while from people like that that we've never heard from before. So little by little, as we add approximately, I think Mr. Dart told me about 110 or so per week to the mailing list, as we continue to hear people who are going to come to the feast with us this year, we're really expecting that festival attendance will be up. And we would appreciate that you pray toward that end and, of course, do everything you can personally to insist that it is up this year. I think we're going to have a marvelous Feast of Tabernacles, a very wonderful fall, a very good new season of television. I'm very excited about the newspaper. The last couple of editions, we tried to cut it down for financial reasons, and we ended up with the biggest one in our history. And then the next one was even bigger than that. It's 24 pages. And uh, if you want to get an advanced copy, we can probably get you one. An extra one is all right. Well, I tackled a sermon last time I had no business trying to tackle in one week. I tried to cover the entire book of 1 Corinthians, and I got through, I think, part of the third chapter. The reason I did so was because of a great number of occurrences in the last few years within the Church of God that are so like what happened in the middle of the first century from about the 50s A.D. until about 95 or 100 A.D., that it really convinces me that human nature does not change all that dramatically. We may live in a space age. We may drive automobiles instead of ride in chariots. Uh, we may be different people in many ways because of technology and what we think we know. But believe it or not, the problems that assailed all of the local congregations over which the Apostle Paul found himself were, if anything, worse in many respects than some of the problems we've had to deal with in this latter day. In the notes in Bullinger's Companion Bible, introductory to 1 Corinthians, he summarizes why the Apostle Paul had to write the way he did to the Corinthian church. Can you imagine, for a minute now, a congregation not all that many years old, it's on a narrow isthmus of the Peloponnesus portion of Greece, it is one of the major cities of that time, almost a half million in population, the church that was there was probably around 400 strong, and it was divided up in about four different directions. If you try to get the scenario in your mind again, remember that these were absolute pagans, only a tiny handful of Jews, 
They'd had no previous religious experience except the pagan heathen religions of the day. Their belief in the polytheistic gods of Greece and of Rome ascribed to those gods orgiastic human appetites. They believed that gods were half horses and half men that they cavorted around the heavens half naked all the time, uh, carrying women away and raping them like the race, rape of Circes and on and on. They were drunken. They had orgies. And so the temple services of some of these pagan gods included various sexual rituals. There were actually prostitutes. Uh, some have suspected that some of the major churches of the world with certain customs of their women bedecking them in certain robes which are allegedly signs of their virginity. Uh, there are large areas of suspicion in the minds of some Protestants that perhaps that is not true that it isn't all that virginal and all of that uh, uh, pure a practice, this idea of celibacy for the males and of absolute abstinence for the females, but there was at least some reason to suspect that some of those practices came out of ancient paganism, where they had their so-called vestal virgins and their temple prostitutes. Now, if you'd been accustomed to going to an orgy, having a gigantic banquet, lying there with the convenient running water beside you. You know, they had the vomit troughs. You ever studied into that of the days of ancient Rome and the heyday of some of the Greek orgies where they would have fabulous banquets of just lavish tables, and they would eat and they would eat and drink and eat until they were absolutely stuffed. And then they would just lean over and take their finger, and I don't want to go into gory detail, but they would force themselves to regurgitate get rid of all of this food, take a glass of water, a little bit of wine, rinse out their trachea, their esophagus, and their mouth, and then simply hand me another bunch of grapes, you know, or another flagon of wine, and start eating all over again. And it would do this for four or five hours. And it would be the half-clad little ladies dancing. You know, you heard about Herod and the dance of Salome and how Herod plotted to get rid of his wife and promised Salome in a drunken fit, you know, that he would give her half of the kingdom, which resulted in the beheading of John the Baptist. And that was not unlike one of the customs that Herod had bar borrowed from the Romans. Here are a group of people who have been so affected by the society around them that the changes that were wrought in them were so minor, when you really look at it plainly, so as to be, in some cases, almost unrecognizable. Now, in my many, many years of experience in the church, my experience in the church goes back to when I was one, I think, or maybe two. Uh, that's true of some of the babies in here. So the little kids who were born... And if their parents and they later are still members of the Church of God, then they'll be like I was. They will have recollections of the Church of God that will go back to their little boyhood. And I remember very well the many, many problems of various egotistical, egocentric people who wanted to carve out a little group of the flock for themselves, who would come up with some weird idea or another. I remember fighting the idea of the unleavened beer, uh, some enterprising soul must have read some high school level encyclopedia at one occasion and decided that beer had effervescence, therefore it bubbled up, therefore it bloated your stomach, therefore it caused you to puff up, therefore it was absolutely against the law during the days of unleavened bread. So people all over the Midwest, one minister swallowed that idea, not the beer, the idea, and was pouring beer, you know, I guess they were even having a ceremony. Let's have a beer dumping ceremony. And they were pouring out all their beer before the days of unleavened bread. 
There was a guy that came up with the idea that you must pray to Jesus only. You could not pray to God the Father through the name of Jesus Christ. And he attended the Feast of Tabernacles. You would find him with his Bible off in the corner, surrounded by a group of, you know, people are like that. Have you ever been on a farm as a boy and fed the chickens? To me, these doctrines are like my grandmother going out with her apron full of seed and going, chit, chit, you know, and throwing the seed, and the chicken just come running, and there they are just standing around in a circle. Well, Uncle Dwight is working around the corner of the tool shed, and he leaps out and grabs the chicken and off with the head, and we got chicken for Sunday. And But it reminded me of those chickens. Here's a guy with a weird doctrine. He's surrounded by people, and they're standing there nodding like so many chickens, and he is expounding some weird doctrine. Now, the bottom line is, Hey, I know something Mr. Armstrong doesn't know, therefore I am smarter than Mr. Armstrong, I am more spiritual than he is, therefore why don't you follow me? Now I've seen that in my boyhood. I've seen it not only in religious organizations, but I've seen it in political speeches. I've seen it, you know, practically everywhere. I figured out one time that if three people were marooned on a life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, they would fight over who got to sit in the prow, over the position of leadership in that church. This is the type of thing the Apostle Paul had to deal with. Can you imagine a church congregation in which there was a faction that was denying the belief in the resurrection? There were open, incestuous relationships, at least one we know of, but there were many people who not only believed in, but were encouraging others to believe in and to practice blatant, open fornication with temple prostitutes in the church in Corinth. It's all here in 1 Corinthians. There were people who decided the Passover should be a supper. Now, since they had only so recently come out of Greek pagan theology, and any kind of a supper was obviously a banquet, and certainly a religious ritual with wine present, they could understand. And so on the Lord's Supper or the Passover, there was wine and there was food. And so they were having a drunken orgy, and the Apostle Paul, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 11, had to chastise them. One is hungry because he got there too late and all the food was gone, and another is drunken, somebody going around at the Passover. Would you, would you be shocked or would you be shocked? If you came in here now, during the Passover season next spring, and two or three of us had been here a little early, and we were in here in the kitchen, allegedly helping to pour the wine, which says, hi, everybody, welcome to the Passover. I mean, wouldn't it just drive you crazy to come to the Passover services, and there would be somebody roaring drunk at the Passover? These were the problems of that church. Now... If we'll just take a real quick look, I'm going to go to Galatians, the first chapter, to show you throughout the church by a couple of quick samples, and we'll just skim through this, to show you what the church was really like during the days the Apostle Paul dealt with a lot of these Greeks. Here is the letter, first chapter of Galatians, written to the churches in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe of southern Galatia, and it was written, oh, probably about 25 to 30 years after the ascension of Jesus Christ. I'm going to go to verse 6 of chapter 1. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. 
Now, what did he say to the Ephesian elders when he stopped by the little town there on the seacoast in Asia on his way to Jerusalem for the Days of Unleavened Bread? And he said in the 20th chapter of Acts that men would arise from within and men would come to attack the flock from without. And he prayed that the Ephesian elders would somehow maintain a vigil and prevent that from happening in the church of God. Let's go quickly to Revelation, the second and third chapters. Here are local congregations now a little later in history, clear down to about 90 to 92 A.D. And here are only some of the difficulties they were experiencing. Chapter 2, verse 2, the church at Ephesus had found that there were liars, there were hypocrites, there were posturers who came among them saying, I am apostle of God. And I bring you the gospel, you know. And they had all of this big, portentous exterior, but it said here, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and how you cannot bear them which are evil, and have tried them which say they are apostles and are not. Question, just dealing with human nature. Did those who came to the church of God in Ephesus, right where Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that this would be so, and cried with them on the seashore, and cried real tears. And they said, oh no, Paul, it'll never happen here. He said, yes, it will. After my departing, wolves are going to enter in from without. Wolves are going to emerge from within. Well, some of those people did watch. Others of them did not. My question is about the false apostles. Do you suppose those false apostles who lied knew they were liars? You know, I, I guess I'm a little cynical. I guess my height is thicker than some people. I think they did. I think they knew better. I don't think they were sincerely misled, bubbly, effervescent, ebullient, wonderful, religious people who just had a few ideas wrong. I think they were a pack of rotten liars entering in to try to carve out a portion of the flock of God because this is inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit calls them liars. Now, does that happen in modern America today? Could that happen here and there around the fringes or within the very church of God? Has that been happening in the past four years in the very church of God? Are there liars preaching to the people of God here and there today? Are, those, are there those today who might be saying that they are in fact apostles and are not? Verse 3, And have borne and have patience, and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted, but they left their first love. Verse 4, and so he told them to repent. In verse 8, the church at Smyrna, look at some of their problems. There were blasphemous Jews there, verse 9, who were lying even about their racial origin and were called to the synagogue of Satan. And it said that they were going to have to go through an awful lot of trials, verse 10. And he said some of them would actually be killed, put to death, martyred for the sake of their religious beliefs. The church at Pergamos, it said in verse 13 that Antipas, the last of those lines of verse 13, had already been put to death. How that had happened, I don't know. Somehow, somebody built up a case against him, utilized the civil authorities. There was a man who was a member of God's church and was called a faithful martyr and was slain among the members of that church where he said, Satan dwells. Verse 14, there were those who held the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and notice this, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, we're going to run across that in 1 Corinthians very strongly. 
Even as we did in the 14th chapter of Romans, if you've read that book, in the church in Rome, in the church in Corinth, there were teachers who were urging these people to go back into the pagan practice of having a, an enjoyable orgy, a sacrificial offering, watching a high priest slit the throat of a bull in front of a leering pagan idol. Now, I was aghast one time when I was in Pasadena when the tale came to me of a minister who at that time was the pastor of the Bakersfield, California church. He was at headquarters. He was a department manager. He was in the very top echelon, the head of the whole vast personnel department. But when word came to me that they were going to sacrifice a lamb for the Passover, I just about went completely through the ceiling. I couldn't believe my ears. And that is the type of thing that they had to deal with in the first century. You will find people who just frankly get a little bit nutty. They want to somehow outrighteous everybody. They want to get just a little more spiritual than everybody else. Like in some churches, it's really fun for the women to wear a big bonnet or a big hat of some sort and come into church and say, I am obedient to 1 Corinthians, you know, the 11th chapter there that talks about women praying or prophesying with their hair, or their head rather, uncovered. I, have you ever been to eastern Pennsylvania? around Hershey, and seen some of the, aren't they Amish or are those Hutterites? I think they're Amish over there. But here you'll be driving down a freeway, and over there will be a black buggy completely enclosed with horses, and there'll be a guy sitting there with a black hat. And they, these people just kind of froze history at one point in time. I guess they came from Russia or somewhere. And whatever was the garb of those Russian immigrants at that period of time, where the women wore the kind of clothing and the men wore the kind of attire that they did way, way back, even before the invention of the automobile, they decided that was the most righteous age in the history of mankind. Let's stop history right here. Everybody wears that kind of clothing. I think the one concession they have made to the modern age is that they do have inflatable tires uh, on those buggies. They, they actually have automobile tires, so the ride is a little easier. In the old days, you used to jounce around with absolute iron and wooden rims, you know. But here they are going along at approximately 5, 7, 12 miles an hour while the automobiles are going by at 55 and 70 on the freeway. And every car that passes them, the carnal, Satan, the devil, pagan, you know, and they're, they're judging all the time. Whenever somebody goes by, they're saying, I'm righteous and he is not. Uh, I'm behind the horse and he's behind the wheel, and I am more righteous because of that. So here in the second chapter and third chapter of Revelation, you'll see that same type of problem these people had. Notice in chapter 2 and coming to verse 20, notwithstanding to the church of Thyatira, he said, I have a few things against you because you suffer or permit, here the whole congregation knew of it, that woman, Jezebel, now this is a literal woman, she bore the same name as one way back in history, but it was a literal woman, same, same name, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. They were doing that at the church in Thyatira. He said in verse 24 to the rest in Thyatira, those that have not known the depths of Satan, I will put no other burden upon you, but hold fast that which you have till I come. Chapter 3, he said of Sardis, that spiritually, verse 1, they were dead. There were only a few of them left. Verse 4, which had not defiled their garments. A little later on, to the church in Philadelphia, 
He said he had set an open door before them. And again, they had a little cadre, that group, verse 9, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Those people were there, whoever they were, whatever they were teaching. Was there a congregation of God's church during that day that did not have desperate problems within as well as terrible problems from without? I don't know of a one. Thessalonica, perhaps in its early days, when you read 1 Thessalonians, is the only letter of the Apostle Paul which is basically congratulatory and which is only partly corrective. But when you look at the next letter he wrote them, chapter 2, and then we'll come to 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, verse 1, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled. I get a letter every now and then, somebody says, I'm upset, I'm shaken in mind, I'm troubled. People get disturbed because of stories and tales and ideas and doctrines that other people bring to them. Now, they weren't to be troubled, neither by spirit, that may be an attitude or an idea that is put in their mind. It may have even been the appearance of an apparition or a voice or something audibly. Nor by word, meaning preaching or teaching or lecturing or private conversation. Nor by letter as from us. I've always pondered that. I've thought, do you mean to tell me that people would literally stoop to writing a so-called epistle, signing Paul's name when Paul didn't write it, and actually forging a signature on a document to try to mislead religious people? And the answer is yes, they did. And I've seen that done in my day. Uh, it was done several times. As a matter of fact, I have certain knowledge back in 1978 and nine, where many, many things were actually written and published that my father possibly never even saw, but yet had his printed signature on them in the worldwide news and other publications. He denied later ever having even seen them. Never even knew of it. Never even saw it, or at least so he said. So, it's amazing. So he said, maybe a spirit, maybe by lecture or preaching or a letter, which would be a, a plagiarist work with perhaps fake signature, that that day of Christ is at hand. They were not to be deceived about that. He was saying it isn't at hand yet. Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, etc. And you can read the rest of that. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And it said that very likely even the very elect would be deceived. Jesus Christ said so in the 24th chapter of Matthew, that those powerful miracles would be so great that even the very elect might be deceived, but except that they were just the very select of the elect, they themselves would be deceived by what they would see. There are, I don't know how many splits, divisions, little, some small, some slightly larger, offshoots, spin-offs, various organizations of the Church of God. It began in probably 1974. Approximately 33 ministers and 2,000 people left the ranks of the church. Some few of those scattered people are still viable, still attending services. I got a letter just this week from the man who had been the treasurer of a group over in North Carolina that began with about five or six ministers and two or three or four local congregations. At that time, that he said the whole thing disintegrated, 
came to absolute nothing. He doesn't even know where they are now, what they're doing, and he wants to come to attend the feast with us. Mr. Raymond Cole began a church. He decided, perhaps not unlike the Hutterites, that what was absolutely righteous was that body of doctrine that had been taught from the 1950s until 1974. And when the error was finally admitted on the counting of Pentecost and the error of making divorce into an unpardonable sin, he said no. Herbert Armstrong had been inspired from the 1950s until 1974, but from this time thereafter he apparently is now corrupted or is not inspired or whatever. So he started a church called the Church of God, comma, the Eternal. And that church is still viable and active. It is headquartered, I think, in Eugene, Oregon. I do believe they keep the annual holy days and the weekly Sabbath. Uh, other than that, I know nothing of them so far as how many there are. But he decided we're going to freeze doctrine right here. We're not going to go on and accept those changes at all. I told my wife, probably 10, 12, 15 years before Mr. Cole ever made his move, that someday he would do so. I said, mark my words, he will do it. It's only a matter of time. There was another young man who got on the radio without any permission from anybody who was a minister of the church. His name was Fred Coulter. He began appearing on Religion on the Line and wrote a Harmony of the Gospels and did every, every other type of thing so far as various uh, individual acts of his own that were not necessarily in concert with the ministry, even though he was on the payroll and a member of the Worldwide Church of God at that time. He also, uh, I don't know exactly how that split came. I know that he stood up in church one Sabbath, perhaps as late as 1980 or 81. It hadn't been very long ago. And uh, he was still in the Worldwide Church for quite some time. I mentioned him just at the conclusion of last week's sermon when we had come to this place about party spirit and all the splits and divisions. You say you're a, a Paulus and you're a Paul and you're a Christ and you're a uh, Kephas or Peter and so on. And I mention all the divisions that have happened in this latter day. I mentioned that because of my visit again up to Denver and the statement I had made to some of the leadership of the Church of God Seventh Day in Glorietta that our mutual histories had been a history of splits and divisions, of little offshoots and upstart groups, and there are probably dozens of them scattered around the country today. And how sad it is, how deleterious, how absolutely sapping of the strength and the vitality of the body of Christ it is to have dozens of little groups, each with their own leader, saying, follow me, and all going off in a couple of dozen different directions and not really doing the work of the watchman, not really preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God as a witness and a warning to the world, but continually preaching in little tiny groups here and there. I don't know whether some of these are actually trying to do some kind of a work to reach the world or not, and there are many, many more than I told you about. There was even one group, as I told you, that meets just with his own family has maybe six or eight people, and every single year they go to the feast and they meet and so on, and they do nothing else. They've been invited to come over and see us if they would and come with us, but no, they're not going to do that. So you know what Paul faced back there? Let's rehearse where we had come to last time, opening up in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. What he experienced back during that day, what he predicted during that, way, that day, is in fact going to happen again. It is happening again. There will be a great falling away during this age. And I've made the point time and again. If you think that that means Baptists returning to the Catholic Church, 
If you think that means Methodists or Episcopalians again saying the Pope in Rome is our leader, you're wrong. Because you can't fall away if you've never stood up in the first place. People that are on their hands and knees crawling on the floor, doctrinally, cannot fall away. Just to give it that analogy. When he said in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, that day shall not come except there be a great falling away first, he is literally talking of the day in which we live. Far more so than he was there. Now, history proves that it happened back then. There were only fragments, perhaps around strong father figures in various isolated family groups. Literally decades, generations would go by, and we have only little fragmentary knowledge in history, as I said, about the Bogomils in Bulgaria and their book called The Key of Truth, which talks about a group that kept the Sabbath. They kept Nisan the 14th. They did observe the Passover. They ordained ministers every two years. There is evidence that they may have observed some of the other annual holy days, and as Mr. Dart has commented, sometimes you're tempted to ask just how far astray can a body of believers go before God will say, well, they're no longer my church. And you know, so far as the people are concerned, if they are sincere, but sincerely misled or misguided, and perhaps sincerely deceived, then God has tolerance and God has patience almost beyond your ability to believe. And apparently, oftentimes, when the people themselves have not deliberately said, here's some truth, I'm going to reject it, uh, here's the way of God, I'm not going to live it, then God is quite tolerant and quite patient with them. So here in 1 Corinthians, let's notice again, there were a church that did not come behind in any spiritual gift, verse 7, but they were all divided up among various schisms or schismatic beliefs, as you can see, and he is beginning to say that they ought to all speak the same thing. Verse 12, this I say, every one of you says, I'm a Paul, well, I'm going to follow Apollos, or I'm a Peter, and I'm a Christ, and he said, is Christ divided? We read all the way through the second chapter about the spirit in man, the deep things of God, the natural man receiving not the things of the spirit of God. In the third chapter, we talked about the foundation of the church. He is leading up to what he wants to come to a little later on. Now, let's come to chapter 4, and notice beginning in verse 1. A man, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Paul has to spend, it seems to me, most of his energy in First and Second Corinthians, as well as in a couple of other letters, a little bit in Romans, a little bit more in Galatians, especially the first two chapters, doing nothing more than defending himself. And you stop to think about that. I suppose he could have written them off and gotten very angry and simply said, all right, that's it, forget it, Peter, you take care of them, I can't stand these people. But he didn't. He worked with them, and he continually defended himself. We're going to find an almost absolute opposite between what you would think Paul would say. Why would a man who just got through really rebuking this congregation for saying, I'm of Paul, turn around and say, don't do that. Don't be a follower of a man. Look how different that is from the men I've been telling you about. The bottom line in every sermon they preach is, follow me, follow me, follow me. Be my group, stick with me, be loyal to me, get back of me, rather than just be, you know, the people of God and check up on what I say and look at the Bible, which is the written word of God as your guide. 
But the Apostle Paul, in a moment we're going to see, said something that seems to be almost a diametric opposite to what he had said earlier. He is going to say at least twice in the next couple, three chapters, Be you followers of me. Yet he has rebuked them, saying, Don't follow any man, follow Christ, and said very clearly that Jesus Christ is the foundation. So in verse 3, With me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. Question. He knew they were judging him. Why didn't he put them out? Why didn't he just put them out? I mean, isn't that what is supposed to be done? Isn't that what is commonly done today? Where is there a congregation that you know of in the worldwide church of God where the whole congregation is known by a lengthy written report that goes to Pasadena to be judgmental of Herbert W. Armstrong. Do you know of such a congregation? Do you know how long it would last? Do you know how long its pastor would keep getting his salary? Do you know how long the hall rental would go out? I think the entire congregation would be disfellowshipped all at once. Paul's reaction to problems like that is quite different than the reaction of the church today, or at least that part of the church. He says that I should be judged. It's a very small thing. He's saying it really is a small matter to me that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Now, in my King James, I have a little number two, and the two leads me to the margin. The margin says day, and I brought my Bullinger's Companion Bible, and that says the same thing. It says man's day, meaning that today man is doing the examining, man is doing the judging, and God is basically silent. So it was according to man's customs and man's standards, he is saying. It's a very minor thing to me that you, by using human carnal standards, should be critical of me and judging me. Yea, I judge not mine own self. Now, a lot of us need to learn that lesson not to even judge our own selves. Oftentimes we condemn ourselves when, if we would simply turn to Jesus Christ and pray and throw ourselves on his mercy, he would take away from us our feelings of self-condemnation. For I know nothing of or by or against or about myself. Verse 4, yet am I not hereby justified. Isn't that an amazing statement? Look how careful he is. He is being so psychologically gentle with them. He is saying, yet, this doesn't justify me either. I look into my heart. I don't find any real evil. I don't even know anything about myself that I could hold against myself right now. But that doesn't justify me. But he that does judge me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, so you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Now notice in verse 6, the latter part of it, and we're going to see this several times, and the clue is going to be in the fifth chapter. Notice verse 6, he says, That no one of you be puffed up for one against another. If you'll notice verse 18, Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. Verse 19, the last line, which are puffed up. Verse 2, chapter 5, and you are puffed up. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see a statement about purging out the old leaven, even as you are unleavened. That's the only book, the New Testament, wherein the Apostle Paul uses that language. And he uses it four times right here 
before we even get to the discussion of the Days of Unleavened Bread. For the purpose, of course, of reminding them that they were, at that precise time, keeping the Days of Unleavened Bread. Even Bullinger admits that in the Companion Bible. He says in verse 7, For who makes you to differ from another? And what of you that you did not receive? You can ask yourself that question. I talked to my sister this morning, and she had gone down to take an art lesson. And she is ten years older than I. Well, she discovered she had a talent for it. She said that she'd done a seascape in one day, and she'd won the top of this class or something like that. Everybody was quite happy with the seascape she'd done. First time in her life at age 62 that she has ever taken up a paintbrush to try to paint. Well, if you have a talent, if you are able to carry a tune, you're able to see symmetry, perspective, certain dimensions. If you have ability toward maybe creativity or inventiveness, if you have a good voice, if you're able to draw or to write, uh, if you have good athletic ability, if you have certain talents that uh, you enjoy, where did you get them? Did you buy them? Did you learn them at school, or were they just latently there? Were they just inside of you somehow, and you began to develop what was already there? The same thing is true when you're speaking spiritually. The knowledge that is in your mind today, you didn't go out and just get. Most of you learned it from an outside source. Many of you learned it from either my father or myself or both, together with many others of the ministry of the church back many, many years ago. Then with that original amount of knowledge that you began to hear, something that challenged you, maybe it was the soul or heaven or hell or the pagan doctrines of Christmas or Easter or New Year's or what have you, maybe it made you angry at first, you began to open up your Bible and you branched out from there and you began to do your own checking and your own research and your own study, and then you began to glean some truth. But even that was given to you. You received it. It was handed to you like a gift. You didn't go out and work for it. You didn't buy it. And he's trying to remind these people that salvation is a gift, that spiritual knowledge is a gift, that spiritual gifts that come to us are certainly gifts. And then why should we boast and why should we judge one another and one of us say, I am better than somebody else because I have more of this information or more of this knowledge? And if you did receive it, verse 7, why do you glory as if you had not received it? Then he gets a little bit sarcastic with him. He says, now are you full, now are you rich, you have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God you did reign, and that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last. Now this is a very interesting passage of scripture, and I'm going to apply it. Perhaps I should not apply it to any one man but let's apply it to the leadership of the church of God as we know it in this age. I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. Here is an apostle writing to the church, talking about how he is considered last. Not how he is welcomed by the leader in Rome, or the leaders in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Not how the general of the army and the mayor of the city and uh, the, the chief priest of the temple of Asclepios uh, got out the gilded chariot and the purple carpet and received him in the temple and had a banquet in his honor. It, it isn't there, brethren. 
As it were, he said, us apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we're made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels and to men. A spectacle unto the world? An apostle? A spectacle? We are fools for Christ's sake, and you're wise in Christ. We are weak, and you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands. I remember an article on the front page. I believe maybe it was a letter rather than an article. Scathing indictment of some of those who had come to the Church of God International who had been in the ministry who were spoken of in the most deprecatory terms by my father, and perhaps the lowest thing he could say of them is that they had been reduced so far down from where they once were that they actually had had to go to work with their own hands. I remember that very vividly. It wasn't all that long ago. They had been in the ministry, but they had come so far down, I mean rock bottom, they'd actually had to go out and work with their hands. What was Jesus? All during those 18 years he was head of the family before he was crucified, but a carpenter, wasn't he? Here was Paul who had to work with his hands. Being reviled, we bless. Oh, isn't that remarkable? Being persecuted, we suffered it. Being defamed, we entreat. We write a conciliatory letter. We ask people, why do you feel that way about us? Why treat us that way? Why don't you look at the other side? of the coin. We entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I'll tell you, the lot of a first century apostle was not quite the same lot as a twentieth century apostle, was it? Quite different. But as my beloved sons, I warn you, for though you have ten thousand instructors in Christ, it seemed like everybody was willing to jump up on the soapbox and try to instruct somebody. He said, Yet have you not many fathers? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, now this appears to be an almost absolute contradiction of what he had said earlier, Wherefore, I beseech you, be you imitators of me. Now, the reason I use the word imitators is because that is the way it really should be translated. There is a total difference between imitation and following. If I ask you all right now, would you all rise, then you're imitating what I'm doing. If I sit down, I imitate what you're doing. We're imitating, but we're on the same level, and that would help you get the point. If I sit down, I'm imitating you. I'm then on your level. If you stand up, you're imitating me and you're on my level. If I say, follow me, that presupposes I'm out in the lead and you're behind. And that word doesn't mean that. It comes from a Greek word, mimetes, M-I-M-E. You've heard of a mime, M-I-M-E-T-E-S, mimetes, or mimetes, however the accent would be, M-I-M-E-T-E-S in Greek, that means to imitate. He is urging them to imitate his lifestyle. Now, when you do as someone else does, you're like it, and therefore you're equal with him. You're on a par, on a level with him. You're not behind him. He's not standing above you. You're on the same level. So Paul is not contradicting himself. He has not basically rebuked this church 
for saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, saying, don't follow men, then turn around and rebuke, you know, I, sh I should say, contradict himself and saying, be followers of me. No, no. The Greek word is imitate me. Imitate my lifestyle. And why is he saying that? He just got through saying what his lifestyle was. Hungry, buffeted, no certain dwelling place, the off-scouring of all things, people looking down upon him in the world. They weren't after great uh, accolades from the general public. So he besought them to become imitators of him. And he said, verse 17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who will bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ. Timotheus was going to do what? Teach them about Paul's lifestyle. Tell them what kind of a guy he really was. Say, no, you got it wrong. Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't go to banquets. Paul does not go to idolatrous sacrifices. No, he is not a man of great appetite. He doesn't like a lot of wine. No, he doesn't go over and visit the temple prostitutes. Paul doesn't do that. Here's the way Paul is. I saw him when he did this. I was with him when he did that. I've spent years and months with him. I know the Apostle Paul. He's not like that. That's what you're reading here. For this cause, for the cause that I want you to be mimetes or imitators of me, have I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who will bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere. And he was consistent in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will and will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. You know, Paul had a lot of confidence because he knew that by looking squarely into the eye of those human beings with the power of God's Holy Spirit and with the power of his voice and his presence, even if he was a weak man physically, which he was, he had an eye defect, he may have even stammered and been a little hesitant in the way he spoke, but he knew that God was with him, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was literally living his life in the Apostle Paul through the power of God's Spirit. He had that confidence, and he said, I will know the power, not the speech, of those which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, not in prating and prattling and telling little stories and in character assassination and little doctrines, but in power. What will you? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Chapter 5 and verse 1 is certainly one of the most ugly reports about a New Testament church that is anywhere in the Bible. It is reported commonly. Now, as you will see in the notes, if you really do a lot of research into the First Corinthian letter, you will see that there had been any number of communications, several of them, not only from Priscilla and Aquila, but from members that lived right there in Corinth who had come to the Apostle Paul with these various stories of what was going on in the Corinthian church, which is the reason for this second letter. I say second because a little later on you will see how he said, I wrote unto you in a letter not to company with fornicators. That letter is lost. The letter in which he said, I wrote you a letter, is this one, and we in the Bible call it 1 Corinthians. It's really 2nd or 3rd or 10th. Who knows? It was quite a bit of correspondence. It is reported commonly that there is porneia. The Greek word is porneia, P-O-R-N-E-I-E-A. And it means, the same word from which we take pornography, it means sexual promiscuity or sexual licentiousness. It can include adultery as well as fornication. The inability of the leadership of the church to understand that simple truth of that Greek word led to the harshest doctrine which actually split families and caused people who had been married for 10, 20, 30 years to break up homes for many, many years because of an inability to see the difference between the Greek word porneia 
and the English word fornication. And it was insisted for many, many years that the only grounds for, quote, divorce were really annulment, and it wasn't a divorce anyway. If God bound it, it was bound, and that God was in the marriage-binding business, and it didn't matter if you were a 17-year-old kid and dumb and in a hurry and pregnant and scared and running away from an incestuous old father. If you married a guy and the marriage blew up six weeks later in a sleazy motel in Galveston, it didn't matter. Here you are now, 68, and with 16 grandchildren, been living with this man for about 25 years. You have got to divorce because your real mate was the one you left in the old motel in Galveston. And that's the way the ministry told people for many, many years, based upon a misunderstanding of just one Greek word. How can this be called fornication? Are you a scholar? You don't need to be a scholar. What are we dealing with here? Fornication is an act, I was told, for 20-some-odd years at the top of one person's lungs, before marriage, outside of marriage then why is that English word attached to this act? What act are we dealing with here? Was the person married or not? The Holy Spirit calls it fornication, porneia. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. That wasn't even happening out in the streets of Corinth. That one should have his father's wife. Now, you know, the scholars have not been able to bring themselves to believe that that really was his own mother. But really, there is not a whit of evidence to the contrary. You really can make up your mind either way you wish. It's probably equally as bad. But because they just can't bring themselves to say it was incest between a son and a mother, they want to say, well, it was probably his stepmother, because otherwise Paul wouldn't have used his father's wife. Well, okay, if that's what he really meant. I confess, I don't know. But either way, if it was the second wife or not, it was the wife of a father, and it was incest. And you are, can you believe that, puffed up and have not rather mourned. And how do you mourn? Well, you mourn through fasting and prayer. You mourn through having no social contact with a person like that, but visiting with them for the purposes of having a very serious talk. You go and you sit down and you just, first you fast, you pray, you, you go in an attitude of humility and trembling. You say, look, I know I'm filled with problems. I'm not perfect. I've got all kinds of problems, but I love you. I respect you. I believe that what you're doing is something that, that we ought to talk about. I think it is hurting you. I think it's hurting the congregation. And you do it absolutely privately. You don't tell anybody else about it between you and the parties involved and between you and the parties and God. And that's where it stops. But you go and you try to help somebody. And you're downcast, and you're hurt because they're hurt. They're hurting themselves. So you should be mourning, he said, that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you were gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Turn back to chapter 1, quickly. Chapter 1, verse 2. Paul has said, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them, plural, that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. doesn't say from Paul to Sosthenes, or from Paul to Apollos. Apollos, I want you to get your hands on the problems in that church. This is not a pastoral epistle. This is an epistle 
to the brethren. It's to the collective church. It's to the laity of the church. Major point. Second major point. I got a letter yesterday. Or no, I guess the letter had been underneath the stack and I dictated an answer to it. Men wanted to know, why do the ministers stand up in the pulpit and call out names of people who have sinned? And he said, I don't understand that. And he was pretty well upset by it. Well, I've seen that happen many, many years. I remember a case of a very fine man, very fine family. Maybe he was going through the... They've now discovered, you know, this thing called male menopause. Well, women need to understand that the 40s and so on sometimes come along and smack a man like a ton of bricks. And that men do go through a kind of a change of life where they make a last desperate, you know, grasp at their fading youth. And I guess the old macho and the ego and, and all the things they missed out on and so on uh, come pouring into their mind. And, and they can make a lot of horrifying mistakes. Well, this poor guy had made his mistakes. Of course, so has everybody else. But unfortunately, his dear sweet wife and his own growing teenage children, of which there were three, didn't know one stupid thing about it. They were just totally in the dark. But somebody in the ministry had found out about it and taken it to the man who was in charge. So the man who was in charge in the Pasadena gymnasium with the family present sitting somewhere in the rear there, teenagers all nice lined up in a row, decided to expose this man's sin, which had been the sin of adultery, right in front of his wife, who didn't even know about it, right in front of his teenagers, and put him out of the church publicly, in front of the whole congregation. Now, I don't know if I got words for that practice or not. At that time, I was just sitting there, just absolutely stunned, tears in my eyes, just like everybody else. I just thought this is a horrifying thing. But I never questioned the doing of it. I mean, that, that the man in the pulpit was wrong to do that didn't really occur to me. I was filled with, with a, a feeling of, of terrible empathy for the woman and the kids and him and the family. Yeah, even for him. <laughs> you know, but I couldn't for the life of me. That was a horrifying thing. And I've seen that done. I, I remember a man that came and had to confess to a horrible thing, a, a perversion, child molestation. And he, he just, his body was racked with sobs and he got on his knees in the office to the minister that he came to and he just poured out his heart. He was just, he was filled with revulsion against, he hated himself. He hated himself. He wanted to repent of that. He wanted to bury it in the past. He, he wanted to forget the, the thoughts that tormented his mind. He couldn't stand it. He hated himself. So the following Friday night, his name was called out in public, and all the mothers were warned to guard their little daughters that a maniac was in the, in the midst. Well, he filed a lawsuit against the church. That was kind of a tawdry story. Isn't this interesting here? Here's a letter written to the lay membership. Look what it says. Chapter 4. 5 verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one. Anybody here know his name? You know that all down through history, unless you were a part of the living generation in the Corinth church who knew who in the world Paul was talking about, you know that you can, you can walk up to this individual in the kingdom of God being in the very spiritual form of God Almighty, a member of the, of the God family, and you know that you will never know 
that he was the guy that committed incest in Corinth because Paul never named him. Never named him. Now, you know, I think that ought to be church policy, don't you? Isn't the word of God something before which we are to tremble? Aren't these letters written for a purpose? Didn't the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, establish these principles and guide in the kind of patience and the kind of humility that he did? The church in Corinth, with all of its terrible problems, incest, drunkenness, idolatry, disbelief in a resurrection, party spirit, all of its problems. But look at the way he handled them. Do you see one disfellowshipment here in public? You see a group of the people, whoever knew who it was, told, put him away from among yourselves. Yes, but he did repent and he did come back. You see, if you'll read the second letter. And Paul talked about that repentance and how happy he was and said, yes, forgive him and forgive him on my part and so on. And again, he doesn't mention his name. I think that's a beautiful example. The one that I told you earlier was not a beautiful example. Then he said in verse 5, because at this time the man had not yet repented, he was doing it blatantly and it was being tolerated, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, you know, when you think about what's going around today, you'll understand what that means. That wasn't a vindictive statement. That was the Apostle Paul saying, look, he is going to receive in himself that recompense which is meat. Read the second chapter of the book of Romans about homosexuality. And it says exactly those words. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves that recompense which was fitting. You know, there's a, an evil little joke going around. I heard it just the day before yesterday. Do you know the difference between love and herpes? Herpes is forever. Isn't that cute? That's a joke going around these days. You ever heard of herpes? You should have read that article in Time magazine. It is apparently so rampant that somewhere around 22 or more million Americans have it. And I would say you're not dealing with the people, you know, in their 35 on up age, basically. You're dealing with teenagers on up to the late 20s. So when you take the 22 million, then you're dealing with probably every third or every fourth teenager has genital herpes. And it is forever. And when you get it, it goes underground, even into the fluid of the base of your spine and the spinal cord, and then comes out and surfaces and gives you these horrible, ugly, yellow, pus-ridden blisters and pustules on your various organs and so on. And it's ugly and it's awful and it's very highly contagious and apparently affects children and so on. So, you know, the promiscuity that began perhaps in the 50s uh, a little more, I think, in the 60s with the hippie communes and with people just living together. And, of course, it is talked about continually on shows like the Johnny Carson show and so on, where people don't anymore. Like in my day, when we went to high school, you didn't even kiss a girl on the first date. You didn't even think of it. It'd be three or four dates before you... And I'm talking literally. I'm talking about a kid who went to high school in 1943, 44, 45. Values were different during that, that day. There were only 50% as many Americans as there are today, for one thing. The Protestant work ethic was still in. Patriotism was something you really believed in. When the flag came on, you got a tear in your eye and felt like saluting. We were at war. Uh, it was a different age, and unless you lived in that age, you teenagers that live today don't have the faintest idea what I'm even talking about. There may be no way I could even begin to communicate to you what I'm talking about. 
the values of society that day were so totally different. To me, in those days, if a girl got pregnant, it was one of the greatest scandals that ever occurred in high school. She was taken away, the whole family moved out, and somebody said, I think they went to Portland. And that was the end of it. It was the most horrifying thing that could ever happen. But seeing a gal uh, walking down the hallway about this big, you know, in high school, oh, when's the little kid coming, you know, uh, the way they do today, it just never occurred to you in that time. Now, it's, uh, they either, quote, put out on the first date, you don't date them anymore. That's the way they talk now. It's totally different than it used to be in the 1940s. I think I liked the day in which I grew up a little better than I do the day today because I think that the values were a little closer to what God would have them to be. Oh, there was hypocrisy. And there were some awfully wrong things that were done, of course. It wasn't a good age in that sense, but it was sure a lot better than it is today. So you might think about that. The Apostle Paul is saying, Deliver such an one unto Satan for whatever rotten disease, whatever venereal disease, whatever untoward monster of a child that might be born out of this horrible union, just whatever physical consequences come back to exact their toll on him, that's what he's going to suffer, that eventually the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Now, how can you imagine? I mean, we wouldn't... Well, I, I like to say that maybe we're better, I guess, than they were. But would we be a church spiritually proud if last Passover three of our men or whatever had been drunk, if there was somebody sitting right in here right now living with his own stepmother... Uh, would we be spiritually proud? But if, on the other hand, one of us had the gifts of healing, and uh, there were various spiritual gifts that were evident in the church, and we knew of them, you know, you, you wonder. It is really a, a puzzlement. I'm, I'm always a practical person. I like to deal in human practical terms. I like to try to imagine what these people looked like, what their conversation was like, how they dressed, uh, just how they were with each other. They were living flesh and blood human beings, how they reacted when this letter was read among them and they studied it and gathered around, began to discuss it in little groups, how it affected them. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, what is he talking about? You allow one case like that to exist in the church and pretty soon everybody's doing it. It's exactly what he was saying. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, and we have preached on this subject time and time again at the time of the Passover, and even your eyes tell you that this is not a contradiction in terms. Purge out the old leaven. Question, were they, quote, leavened, in quote, spiritually? Answer, yes. There was leavening. They were puffed up. He said it five times already. Purge out that leaven, meaning sin, that you may be a new lump. So there was sin there. They did have sin personally and in the congregation even as you are unleavened. Well, the only explanation of that verse is they were observing the days of unleavened bread. It says right here in Bullinger's Companion Bible, he admits that. Keep the feast. He means the Passover being passed, that they were right then during the days of unleavened bread. Why the churches of this world can't see that, I'll never know. That is so clear. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us, says Paul to the Gentiles, to a Gentile church in Corinth, keep the feast. Now, I am so thankful that I don't have the job, because I'm not a Lutheran or an Episcopalian, to stand here in this pulpit, break out in a cold sweat, and figure out how to reason around a whole room full of what I assume to be intelligent human beings to tell them that what I just read doesn't mean what it says. 
And that Paul was not telling the Corinthian church to keep the feasts of God, the feast of the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. But that actually it just meant, well, uh, let's just keep a perennial feast in our hearts for the rest of our lives and, and, and try to convince people that that's what he means. No, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, I mentioned that earlier, so this is really 2 Corinthians, not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. Remember, he called the act of incest fornication. And he's applying that to both people. It takes two to tango, you know. He wasn't saying it was fornication on the part of the one who was young who wasn't married, but it was adultery on the part of the other one. No, he makes no such distinction. He only uses the one word, porneia, throughout. I told you, I think, I remembered a case where a young girl wanted to know if it was grounds for divorce because they arrested her husband going up an escalator in a downtown department store in, in Denver wearing a dress. And, uh, you know, as far as I was concerned, I said, you bet it is. You bet it is. She didn't know she'd married a transvestite. He, he, wore, he wore slacks uh, when she dated him, and he wore a suit when she married him. And uh, the idea that her own husband would be arrested by the Denver police prancing around with a handbag and lipstick on his face uh, in a department store going through the ladies' lingerie uh, never remotely occurred to the young gal. Now, does the word, you know, porneia, cover such a sin? And I say, if you look up the Greek, yes, it really does. Sexual promiscuity. A lot of people think adultery is not grounds for a divorce. Well, the Bible plainly shows that it is, and it's included in the word porneia. Because nothing can wreck a marriage and absolutely destroy that very close personal relationship between a husband and wife quicker than something like that can, and certainly a great amount of forgiveness is necessary for that to be healed. He says, going on, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators, those who commit what is called porneia, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous. Notice the other brackets that are just as bad in God's sight, or extortioners, or with idolaters. Now, I want to mention that briefly because we read what the problems were in the churches in Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. We read about the Galatians. Jezebel, who taught the people to do what? Commit fornication and eat things sacrificed to idols, apparently at the same time, in the same ceremony. For then must you needs go out of the world, meaning that, you know, anybody you meet in the general public is probably guilty of those things. But now I've written unto you not to keep company. Now, I went to the Companion Bible and looking up, what does it mean to keep company? It means company with. Really, it doesn't give you any great big lengthy uh, explanation of it. It means fellowship. It means you don't have them in your home to play Monopoly. It means you don't go out to happy hour with them. It means you don't just stand around and chit-chat and visit and gossip. They're not your bosom buddies. They're not your backyard, can I have a cup of sugar, closest friends, if they are this way. Do you know anybody in the church who is so covetous that all they can talk about is grasping and getting and buying and getting ahead and making a buck and just absolutely absorbed with covetousness? Well, you probably don't when you stop to think of it. That's a difficult sin to perhaps really nail down. But the Apostle Paul certainly uses that sin here when he said you're not to keep company with people who are covetous. 
or extortioners. Now, that is brought up several times. A little later on, we're going to see that he says that's the kind of people you used to be here, listing some of the sins of that church. Or with idolaters, and of course, they all had been idolaters. But he said in verse 11, But now have I written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer. That means an angry person given to explosions of temper, and cursing, and shouting, and angry, and hostile, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. So he defines it, meaning going to dinner, having them in your home, not eating, not socializing with them. And he is dealing with lay members. And he is saying that if enough of those lay members obey this, then the individual just ends up isolated. And suddenly they look around and no one really wants to have all that much to do with them anymore. Now some talking is going to have to go on. I want to go to Galatians uh, right quickly, the sixth chapter, and notice just one scripture here in passing. It says, beginning in verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, that means not everybody in the congregation, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. On another occasion, when he talks about putting someone out, he said, admonish him as a brother. Question. How do you bear one another's burdens? How do you, which are spiritual, go to such an one in the spirit of meekness if you shun him? I'm asking it for this purpose. Are we reading here when it says, put away from yourselves that wicked person? Do not eat with him. Does it mean total shunning? Or is it saying, have no contact socially? It doesn't say, have no contact you need to put together line upon line and precept upon precept. If you are going to admonish such an one in the spirit of meekness considering yourself, you've got to have contact. But it's business-like contact. It is contact on the phone in our modern day. It is contact through a letter. It is perhaps contact man-to-man, -man, maybe over a beer in a bar if you want to, when you can let your hair down and say, look, here's what's on my mind. I feel I want to talk to you about something. But it is not shunning. You notice you can't find shunning in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Now, shunning is being done by some people who think they're God's people today. They are brutally and harshly just shunning other people, not even talking to them to even say hello or how are you doing. And that is evil and is not enjoined upon people in the Bible at all. Well, I think that I'm going to complete chapter 5 there and not continue on, because there are so many deep subjects in 1 Corinthians. I'll probably just have to let you read through the rest of it and not try to cover the entire book. I think for the purposes of what I wanted to accomplish in these last two sermons that I have accomplished that purpose. So he says in verse 12, For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not you judge them that are within. He is dealing with lay members. He is talking about concerted action on the part of various families within a church. He is not telling the ministry to stand up and read people's names aloud. But them that are without God judges, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Well, you know, the church problems of the first century are just about exactly like the church problems that we have today. Even since beginning over here back in 1978, we have had various ones who tried to 
in a sense, take over and run things and, and lead off groups for themselves. We have had people who postured, who, who didn't come to me or didn't come to Ron Dart or the board or anybody and say, look, here's my problem, can I talk about it? But we're here for like a conference and then went back to their own areas and stood up in their congregation and said all sorts of defamatory things about Tyler and, and then everybody said, I'm mad at Tyler. Well, finally, two or three years later, some of those people that heard that are going to be coming to the feast with us. But feelings got hurt and men made various uh, postures, you know. There was a fine gentleman who was a member of the Board of Trustees. One time, Mr. Carnes ran across him in a local uh, restaurant. Fine, converted man that used to come up to me and, oh, we love you and we love the Lord. And that was a marvelous sermon, Ted, and just such a wonderful man. Had a big cigar in his mouth. And told Mr. Carnes, hey, Mr. Carnes, let's, let's pass a resolution about the board or something. Hostile, angry, turned off, bitter. We have those problems. We've had our party spirits. We've had people with their own personal problems, marriage problems, and family problems, and teenage problems, and health problems, and attitude problems. And we are no better, and we are no different. God give us the strength, as the ministry and as lay members, to be as patient, to be as kind, to be as careful, to have as, as, as much gentleness, to handle problems as they arise in the same way Paul did. I think the way Paul handled that Corinthian church is beautiful. He didn't mention that guy's name. I don't read of him, you know, uh, putting people out en masse or vaunting himself or exalting himself at all. But just read of a really humble man that said, live the way I live and be imitators of me. He didn't say, follow me and get back of me at all. So I hope that God gives me, Mr. Dart, all the rest of the ministry in the Church of God International, the kind of wisdom to handle problems within the Church of God the same way the Apostle Paul did. Next time you have a problem and you wonder why the Church hasn't called you in on the carpet for a big four-hour counseling session, maybe you will understand. We just don't do things that way.